to rebuild his testimony. How many of you guys have been reading along in the book of Nehemiah with this class? Raise your hands. Great. Well, what happens when you come to a chapter like chapter 3? At first glance, this appears like a grocery list. Uh, What we have here is a listing of names and a description of the rebuilding effort. Uh, So why is Nehemiah 3 in the Bible, and why are we devoting one of our class lessons to it? Well, if we're going to take Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.16 seriously, then we know that Nehemiah 3 has been breathed out by God, and that it's profitable for us. In fact, like all of Scripture, it's necessary for us. It's, It's something we need to hear. But why is it? significant. Well, this chapter is obviously important because here the wall is beginning to be rebuilt, and pretty much the entire book is about this wall, and so just kind of as readers wanting to know what what happens next, these are important details, and so we should note at least that. But I think that there's something else here. I, I think that there's something very theological that Nehemiah intends for us to recognize. Nehemiah wants us to see the work of the Lord to unite the people of the Lord for the purpose of the Lord. The work of the Lord to unite the people of the Lord for the purpose of the Lord. You know, when I think of Nehemiah 3, I think of a, of a New Orleans Saints game. Uh, con- consider this. What does Sean Payton do at a Saints game? Well, in one sense, nothing. (laughs) He's not on the field. He's not catching the ball. He's not making tackles. He's not running routes. But we really know he's doing everything. The, The game doesn't happen without him. He's in every play. And I think in the same way, if you look at Nehemiah 3, you won't find the activity of the Lord mentioned there. But he's in every verse. This is his work. And we'll see how. But first, let's ask for God to meet us as we open his book. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the story of Nehemiah 3 would be the story of Lakeview Christian Center. God, that we would be a people who are eager to serve you who are ready to be united together for your work in this church. So God, open up your word to us this morning and feed us, God. Give us understanding, and Lord, may we see the fruit of this in our lives. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think that this text teaches us at least four things. First, that God uses means and he uses people as means. Second, that God works through a unity of purpose. Third, the disunity and kingdom idleness are a result of pride. And fourth, and then we'll go through these, true unity is based in the gospel. So first, God uses means and he uses people as means. Look at verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, again this is chapter 3, rose up with his brothers, the priests, And they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. 
and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zachar the son of Emri built. When we first read these verses, they, they seem pretty unremarkable, and that's because they are. There's this wall that, that needs building, and so Eliashib stands up with his brothers, and he starts working. He, he grabs his, his tool belt, he gets his Black and Decker, and he gets to work. There, there's something very ordinary about it. You know, maybe this isn't what we expected to read. You know, maybe after Nehemiah said the amen to his prayer in chapter 1, we expected that the wall would just kind of descend from heaven and get set in place. I mean, God certainly could have done it like that, right? I mean, make, make no mistake, if God wants to make a wall, he doesn't need Eliashib or Zachar or Merimoth. <laughs> he made the entire universe out of nothing. But God uses means, and he uses people as means. God ordains not only what he desires to accomplish, but he also sets in place the means for it to be accomplished. He uses human resources, effort, work. And, and sometimes this means hard work. These men were working outside in the heat, in the climate conditions of the ancient Near East. There were blisters, calluses, sweat, dirt. There was a significant level of discomfort involved. And God worked through their work. God does not need us, but he delights to use us. And God knows every contribution. Just let your eyes scan the pages of this chapter. What, what we have here is a canonical listing of the names of the builders. None is too insignificant so as to escape God's notice. It's like what Jesus tells the churches in Revelation 2. I know your work. These are God's builders and God knows them. You know, this list of names in this chapter is, is not unlike our church covenant. People from different ages and different backgrounds who are committed to building the church together. When we, when we sign that covenant that's hanging in the foyer on the wall downstairs, when we signed that covenant, we were literally in the process of constructing this, this church building. But, but everyone who signed that covenant since, by doing so, has expressed a commitment to build the church. If you're a member here, and if you're not a member of a local church, and yet you attend here regularly, I suggest you become one. But if, if you're a member here, I hope that means that you're committed to seeing this church built up in the faith. To seeing its, its fruitfulness in ministry expanded, its impact on lives increased. The question is, are you ready to labor? Because <laughs> church work is hard work for many reasons. It, it's hard work because it requires actual work. You know, children's ministry volunteers changing soil diapers and people setting up tables and, and chairs for events, physical labor. But, but it's hard work mainly because it involves working with people which is far from easy. <laughs> it means being in each other's lives in a meaningful way. 
church work is the hard work of working with people who may hurt you. Church work means opening up your home and your heart to others when you feel like there's no room left. Church work means being willing to go in a direction that's unfamiliar or uncomfortable, but necessary for the fruit of the gospel. Church work involves following imperfect and weak leaders who may neglect you or disappoint you or fail you in some way. Church work means valuing Christ and his mission more than your finances, your reputation, your comfort, or your time. This is not easy, but it requires every one of us. Every one of us. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 15 and 16. He says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the picture for our church. Every part working properly so that the body builds itself up in love. Are you ready to build? Because <laughs> we are the builders God uses. Second, God works through a unity of purpose. Something that should catch our eye about this account is the unity of the people for the work of the Lord. Look in verse 3. The sons of Hassaneah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. This phrase, and next to them, appears 15 times in this chapter. And after him appears 16 times. They are literally working shoulder and shoulder to shoulder together for the Lord. The author wants to impress upon us their unity. This is God's doing. This is part of, of God's favor on the rebuilding process. Look at what Nehemiah had said at the end of chapter 2, verse 20. He said, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and Build. Note the joining together of these two things. God will prosper us and we will build. We will work and God will do it. And the way that God accomplishes this is by uniting his people for the task. This is his favor on their effort. Think of all the potential avenues for disruption here. Think of the possible arguments and fights that could have prevented the rebuilding process from continuing. I'm sure that guys in the church who work in construction could tell us that it isn't always pretty. And yet God has brought his people together to work for his purpose. It doesn't mean there weren't any problems. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to encounter some significant 
opposition. But what is clear here and what the narrator seems to be delighting in is the unity of the people of God for the work of God. You know, I think it would be helpful for you to know that your pastors have been praying that this would happen in you this year. Your, your pastors have individually sensed a burden to pray that we would be a people united around God's work in this church. It's not to say that we haven't enjoyed a, a significant level of unity and eagerness to serve here. We, we have, but we should always be ready to see God grow us in this way. And as our next point will, will show us, to discern whether there's anything in our hearts that could hinder us from joyful participation in the Lord's work. You know, it shouldn't surprise us that we need prayer for this to happen because Jesus himself prayed for the unity of his people. In John 17, verse 11, he said, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And, and what's more astounding than Jesus' request is the basis for his request. Notice the, the comparative conjunction here, that they may be one even as we are one. And I think, I'm pretty sure Pastor Peter would fire me if I didn't bring this to the rock bottom and said that the ultimate basis for any, any unity in God's people is found in God himself, in his own triune nature. To say that God works through unity of purpose is to say something true of God within himself. Father, I pray that they may be one even as we are one. Unity is something God values because unity is what he is. God is a perfect union of three equal yet distinct divine purses united in one eternal God. God is a community of persons at work together, sharing the same purpose, the same desires, the same delights. And God has patterned the church after his own self-portrait. He desires that we would be a people ready to work together, ready to build together for his name. Notice how Bruce Ware describes the Trinity. He says, the one God is three. He is by very nature both a unity of being while also existing eternally as a society of persons. God's tri-personal reality is intrinsic to his existence as the one God who alone is God. He is a socially related being within himself. In this tri-personal relationship, the three persons love one another, support one another, communicate with one another, and in everything respect and enjoy one another. This should inform our calling to community in whatever context we're in, whether that's our, our marriages, covenant groups, relationships in the broader church, Paul frames unity in the church after this Trinitarian pattern in Ephesians 4, 
verse 4 through 7, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I think we see right there in that, in that verse, but grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift that unity does not mean the absence of diversity. This is true even for God himself, that the Trinity is a perfect union of three persons with distinct roles. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit don't function in identical ways in the work of redemption. In God's people, unity does not necessitate uniformity. And I think we see this in this text. The, the workers listed in Nehemiah 3 have a variety of backgrounds and stages of life. There are priests in verse 1, nobles in verse 5, goldsmiths in verse 8 and 31, perfumers in verse 8, temple servants, verse 31, and merchants, parents working with both sons and daughters. In verse 12, there also seems to be a distinction of roles. Leadership is present to supervise the building process. In verse 9, in verse 12, in verse 14 through 19, different people, different roles, one unified task. George Eldon Ladd writes, the unity, this unity is far deeper than organizational structure. Even as the Father and the Son are one while remaining separate persons, so the unity of the church must allow for outward distinctions. Unity is not uniformity. However, the unity for which Christ prayed cannot be altogether relegated to an invisible spiritual realm. It is to be so visible that it will be a witness to the world of Jesus' divine origin. The, the amazing thing about unity is not an outward appearance of sameness. Unity is amazing when, when to the onlooking world there seems to be no reason we would tolerate one another, let alone enjoy being together, and yet we value the mission of Christ so much that we love sharing life together and working with one another. You know, we don't want to be some, some sort of like Stepford Wife church where everyone dresses the same and has the same thoughts and lives in the same neighborhood and puts their, their kids in the same school or homeschool. But we want to be a community of redeemed people who cherish the gospel and love the church and are eager to labor for Christ's kingdom. Third, disunity and kingdom idleness a result of pride. There's a passing remark that Nehemiah makes in this chapter that should grab our attention. It, it stands out not because it's a main point in this text, but because it it goes against the current of everything else in this text. Look at verse 5. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. 
their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Of everyone mentioned in this chapter, this one group refused to work. And, and this, this phrase, would not stoop to serve, it's an idiomatic rendering of a Hebrew phrase, uh, would not put their shoulder to the work. It, it's an image from the agricultural scene of a stubborn oxen that, that refuses to be yoked. And, and the connection between nobility and, and stooping makes it clear that the, the main reason these nobles will not participate in the re rebuilding effort was because of pride. They were nobles. They were elite and they were unwilling to humble themselves and get their hands dirty for the Lord's work. This should give us pause. No, no offense, but we probably don't have any nobility in this room. <laughs> but perhaps you carry yourself in your heart in a way that's similar to the, the way these nobles did, even though you might be unaware of it. Give a moment to consider this. When was the last time you humbled yourself and labored for Christ's people? When was the last time you went down to the Welcome Center and put your name on a sign-up list? When was the last time you, you started up an uncomfortable conversation that you knew it was for that person's good and for Christ's honor? And if it's difficult for you to remember these, might it be because of pride? Pride is an immobilizing force. Pride stops us in our tracks when we know we should approach someone. Pride reminds us how much easier it is and how much of a benefit it is to us if we just let other people do the serving. And pride can have many faces. It could come in the form of fear of how we'll be perceived if we invite someone else into our home. Anxiety that makes us reluctant to give generously of our, of our finances. Laziness that just gives us a sense of freedom from having to do anything other than show up or show up late. Raymond Brown writes, Pride is a cruel enemy. It inflates our self-importance and makes holiness impossible. It views humility as a failing Rather than a virtue, it deflects our steps from the way of the cross. It refuses to see Christ as the noblest example and forgets that he poured water into a basin and washed the feet of others. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. If you find yourself currently in a pattern of inactivity, with respect to the church. I, I'm, I'm not saying that it must be because of pride. Far from it. There, there are many legitimate reasons why you might be in a season of life where you're just not able to serve like you have in the past. What I'm saying is that it, it may be because of pride and that we would do our souls and our families and our church 
much good if we would look to the Lord and, and seek Him and consider this. By and large, this is not your story. <laughs> this is a church filled with people who just love to give of themselves over and over again. And, and examples of this could be multiplied. But, but when I read this, this verse, I thought in particular of Todd Krulak. You may or may not know the, the Krulak family. They moved down here a couple of years ago. But, but Todd has a Ph.D., and he teaches uh, courses in philosophy and early church history at Tulane. And here in the church, he serves at our child check-in station. Uh, no, no sense of, of this is below me. He, he types in the names of your kids. He grabs your children and their accompanying diaper bags, and he hands them off to the nursery. He stoops to serve the Lord, and so do many of you. One other thing we should note in this verse before moving on is that the, the nobles were not only inactive because of their pride, but it also separated them from what the Lord was doing through the people. This is the one note of disunity that's so dissonant with the melody of the rest of the chapter. In each of us there is sin that repels us from others. You ever play with those, those train sets that, that have magnets on them? You know, they can connect together. Um, they have a positive side and a negative side, and, and obviously you're supposed to connect the positives and the negatives together. But, but if you've ever played with these, you, you know that if you try to connect together the positive and the positive or the negative and the negative, as I was trying to do with Owen Earhart the other night at Jeff and Kathy's, it, 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 they separate and it creates this, this weird wind-like sensation between them. You, you can try to force them together, but they, they quickly repel. And in every one of us, as long as we live on this earth without our glorified bodies, there is a repelling force. There is something in us that creates a natural reaction to move away from people in our affections and in our Activity. Now, that, that doesn't mean necessarily, it could mean this, but it doesn't mean that we become hermits and just live away from society. We, we might be surrounded by people who we're just using for affirmation or for thrills or, or for whatever. But our hearts are repelling them just the same. And, and nothing is more prone to divide the church than this. You find when you think of people in the church, that you're more likely to call to mind how they're a nuisance to you than how they're helpful to you. When the church is going in a particular direction or pursuing a particular way to minister, are you, are you more likely to respond with criticism and retreat or are you easy to get on board? Dane Ortland writes, sin has an inertia of disunity. If we can find something, anything to divide over, we'll do it. That is dangerous. And, and that was in the nobles in Nehemiah's day. And it is in every one of us. It is in my 
heart. But there is hope in the gospel. And that brings us to our final point. True unity is based in the gospel. There's a particular detail that bookends this chapter. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. Look at the end in verse 32. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So the rebuilding effort worked counterclockwise, starting with the sheep gate uh, that was consecrated. Consecrating the, the sheep gate and beginning and ending the rebuilding process with it gave to it a symbolic significance. This is the people saying, we think this is important. This is central to our work. And the sheep gate provided uh, easy and regular access into the temple. Particularly, and this is why it's named like this, for animals that were used for sacrifice. So when they consecrate the sheep gate and, the, and they start and end the rebuilding process with it, they're saying we're a community built around atonement. That is a uniting feature. Unity, this is important for us to see, unity can come only by atonement. You know, our, our English word atonement was probably coined by William Tyndale when he translated the first Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English. And, and what he did, he just took the words at one meant and he put them together to represent the biblical notion of reconciliation by sacrifice. Unity can come only by atonement because it is our sin that has broken fellowship with the Lord and with others. We do not come into this world at one with God. We enter it as His enemies. We come in and we stake our flag into the soil of the universe and we announce it as our domain and declare war against anyone who stands in our way. We are not at one with God or with God's people. We need atonement. The animals for sacrifice that passed through the sheep gate pointed to the final sacrifice that was to come. True atonement, true Unity was accomplished finally and fully by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There is no unity without Calvary. And that's Paul's point in Ephesians 2, verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby 
killing the hostility. God killed hostility when he killed his son. He nailed it to the cross. He removed all opposition between him and his people. All enmity from among those for whom Christ died. Nothing unites like the common ground beneath the cross of Christ. Only the power of the crucified and risen Jesus can stop the inertia of disunity that's within us. Paul continues in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Israel rebuilt their wall around the sheep gate. We build on the gospel, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Without the gospel, there's no reason to be together this morning. There really isn't. Without the gospel, there is no reason to build. But because of the gospel, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is building us. And by the Spirit, He is building us through our building, through our effort, our labor. He is uniting us for the task. Are you ready to work? Are you ready to build here? Let's pray. Father, only you can make us ready. Lord, only you can take a group of rebels who hated you, who hated other people. And Lord, through the cross, join us with yourself and join us together to be a people unified for your name. Lord, that is miraculous. That's beyond our understanding. And God, we pray that that miracle would continue here, God, that we would be a people who, who love the gospel and who love to work for your kingdom. God, add to our number, and Lord, give us an eagerness and a joy in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.